This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The country's poverty rate up for the first time in more than a decade. We go in-depth into what's happening right here in L.A. McDonald's making a big change that could have major impacts on the entire fast food industry. Also, the idea of giving 100% effort at work or anywhere else is being challenged. There is a magic number, and we'll tell you just how much you can slack off. What percentage of of time do we spend doing actual work, do you think? You know, I'm going to defer to my lawyer on (laughs) answering that question and uh, leave it at that. 100%, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100% of my spiritual and Uh mental energy goes into this job. Okay, uh, we start with the uh, countries, a little fibbing going on there, but okay. We start with the uh, country's rising poverty rate. Janet Marinaccio is president and CEO of MEND. That happens to be a nonprofit organization that helps struggling people and families uh, over in the San Fernando Valley. Janet, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So this is, of course, by any measure, not good news. These are nationwide uh, trends, the uh, increase in the poverty rate. But let's talk about here in L.A. Uh, Are you noticing a real difference? And is it a negative one, the way these figures nationwide would seem to indicate they would be? Yes, we are seeing a huge difference. Our largest program is our food bank. And... Between us and a network of food pantry partners, we're seeing an increased demand for food. And we're seeing people come to our office in Pacoima in the Northeast Valley from as far away as the Antelope Valley and even Long Beach. So people come from far and wide to receive food support. Just for comparison, pre-pandemic, we provided food to an average of 1,200 households a month. In 2023, we're averaging four times that amount. But the real spike happened right after the CalFresh emergency allotments that were given out during COVID were rolled back in March. So since March, we're now seeing an average of 5,200 households a month come through for food. And, you know, those are disturbing numbers, uh, of course. But on the other hand, you know, if that's the major factor behind this pandemic era relief uh, going away, you know, the pandemic relief could not last forever. But was there a better way of maybe weaning off of it rather than uh, quitting it cold turkey? Oh, certainly, especially because the cost of living now is so high. You know, groceries, gas, rent. I just looked at some USDA data that showed that between July of 22 and July of 23, grocery prices are 4.9% higher. And when you're a very low-income family, that puts a lot of pressure on them to, to just make ends meet. And it also ends up costing us as an organization more because we now have to purchase food. We get the vast majority that we get is donated from grocery stores, companies, groups that do food drives. But with the exponentially larger number of people coming in, we've had to purchase food in larger quantities. In 2019, before the pandemic, we did about $2,000 in purchases. Everything else was donated. We've now had to purchase more than $103,000 in food to keep up with the demand. Janet, do you see any light at the end of this otherwise dismal tunnel? Well, I'm always hopeful. I wouldn't work in nonprofit if I weren't always a hopeful person. But, but you have to be realistic, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot really depends on what happens with, you know, with the larger economy, right? And what happens to the cost of items, um, what happens with rent controls. And, and there's so many factors that are at play for people in poverty. And then when people are newly in poverty, you know, say they were doing fine before the pandemic, and now they're coming in having to get food from a food bank, it's, it's kind of foreign for them, right? Um, I don't know what the light at the end of the tunnel will be. Janet Marinaccio, thank you, uh, president and CEO of uh, MEN. That's a nonprofit organization helping people and families in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. And by the way, before we get on to our next topic, uh, so a, a advisory panel to the CDC has just uh, voted 13 to 1 uh, in favor of uh, having all people six and older, six months of age and older, get the uh, new COVID booster. It still has to be signed off of off on by the uh, CDC director, but apparently once that happens, which is expected, by the way, later today, then uh, apparently within 48 hours of that signature, the vaccines should start to flow as vaccines do. A step do. closer to my arm. Yes, uh, to pharmacies. Uh, right now, though, some cold medicines could soon be pulled from store shelves following a vote by an FDA advisory panel. That panel found that a decongestant in those medicines, well, it actually doesn't do anything. Uh, Dr. Mark Kerner is an ear, nose, and throat surgeon with Cal West Head and Neck Surgical Institute in Northridge. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Oh, hi. Happy. Uh, good afternoon. I'm I'm happy to be with you. So uh, I don't know why it doesn't really surprise me that this multi-billion-dollar industry that pumps out uh, all of these so-called cold medicines that a lot of the stuff that people buy when they have a cold that they think is going to work as a decongestant, apparently doesn't do anything? Right. So the, the formulation that they're talking about now in this advisory panel is phenylephrine, which was a drug that was developed to try to replace the other drug called pseudoephedrine, which is what's in the plain old Sudafed, the original decongestant, that now you can only get behind the counter uh, by the pharmacist because it's a component used in methamphetamines. So phenylephrine, which was felt to be a little bit safer and probably more effective, has now been found to not be effective. And we knew that as clinicians. We would see patients on these for years and years and years. I've been doing this for 30 years. And we find that they really have no effect whatsoever. But this is not the nasal spray. So I want to be clear about that. It's the phenylephrine in the pill form, which they found by looking at uh, a number of studies that have been done over the last 20 years and looking at the original studies, it's not effective at all. Yeah, so the nasal sprays still work because the last time I had a cold, the nasal spray uh, cleared up my nose for me. Right, and they do work. The problem with those, and and um, a lot of us believe those should be taken off the market too, they can cause a significant amount of rebound and problems themselves, and they, they have to be used very carefully and only for short periods of time. So as long as they have those kind of warnings, that's fine, and they are effective for just, you know, a few days at a time only. The problem is when they get addicted to this, uh, to those nasal sprays that have phenylephrine, uh, that becomes a problem as well. The phenylephrine that was in the pill has not really been, is now been shown to do nothing. And we pretty much knew that as clinicians, but, um, you know, we never recommend patients take those. But uh, like you said, it's a multi-billion dollar business and 
Um, I'm surprised they looked at this again, but um, now the FDA hasn't taken it off yet. The not FDA yet. Not yet. But but yeah, let me but, but let me but, but let me ask you that yeah. uh, about that. Uh, you know, how does something like this? happen. I, I know when I get a cold, uh, I will get the stuff from, you know, behind the counter that you have to show your driver's license, because I know that that actually works. Uh, and I've long known that the other stuff doesn't work. And I know because I tried it and it didn't do anything. And and clinicians such as yourself have known this for years. So how does it get approved in the first place? And how does it stay on the market? And it's still on the market, by the way, uh, all of these decades when apparently you can take a sugar pill and have the same effect? <laughs> well, that's the that's the question of the day. I mean, that's really a great question. Um, you know, these were these original studies were done probably 40, 50 years ago, 40 years ago or so, probably in the 70s and 80s when these uh, compounds were developed. So I think that, um, you know, they got approved, they get out there, and they're generally considered effective and safe, but they really weren't effective. And um, they're really not all that safe. They're a little bit safer than the Sudafed in terms of blood pressure. So, so people that are, have blood pressure issues can have some sensitivity to Sudafed, where phenylephrine, where phenylephrine was felt to be a little bit safer. But the, the fact of the matter is they don't work. And um, I'm really surprised, too, that it took so long for the FDA to, to re-look at this. Well, at, uh, uh, very quickly here, at the risk of alienating pharma companies, uh, what should we take when we have your basic cold? Well, the best thing for this is just nasal saline irrigations or any of these um, nasal sprays such as Novid or Xylitol or all these others that are available that don't contain these kind of medications that causes vasoconstriction. Um, I know people like to take pills sometimes over um, uh, over nasal sprays, but the nasal sprays are actually more effective because they're working where the problem really is. In terms of taking oral medications, they could go with the um, non-sedating antihistamines that are now readily available over the counter, and those, those are more effective. And so um, it, you would be much better off and safer taking those. And if you don't have a, a particular medical issue like high blood pressure, the stuff that you get behind the counter does work. Right. And for short periods of time, not taken over a long period of time um, and used in the in the appropriate doses that, you know, that that you're supposed to use, um, they can be very safe. All right, Dr. Mark Kerner, thank you for joining us on the show today. Some decongestants being taken off the market because uh, they don't work. Yeah, nothing to sneeze at. And a little bit later, you know that expression, especially at work, uh, give it your all. Yeah. Uh, give it your all. They always say that when you yeah. get a job. Oh, yeah. Give yeah. it your all. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe maybe you should be a slacker. Maybe you yeah. should be the, the kind of worker that your employer wishes would go on vacation and not come back. Maybe you should be that person. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the story is about, but I'm in. <laughs> You're in? I'm in. Okay. Uh, right now, though, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he is directing a House committee to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Carrie Pickett is the senior congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So some issues here with this uh, impeachment inquiry. Uh, first uh, first of all, uh, if if memory serves, I believe that Mr. McCarthy had said that he would not do this without a full House vote. There has not been a full House vote uh, why not? Well, uh, you know, of course, I, I, I would think that uh, Mr. McCarthy is probably going to have some problems finding the votes on his own side of the aisle. But when asked about that uh, earlier today, uh, Mr. McCarthy did point out that 
uh, Speaker or then Speaker Pelosi back when the Democrats had control of the House back in 2019, almost a year to this day, that uh, she did not hold a House vote for an inquiry either in the first impeachment of President Trump. He said that she sort of changed the precedent. So he's sort of going with that sort of theme right now and figures that, you know, now since that kind of changed, he's going forward with that. Also with the second impeachment of President Trump, uh, there was no inquiry either. So, you know, rules have changed as far as impeachments are concerned. So that's how it appears to be going forward right now. So is this really all about, because it seems like it is, uh, just this sort of game of presuming that it's Biden versus Trump again, not certain, but presuming that that's the scenario, that Mm -hmm. each one can say, can point a finger at the other and say, oh, but you were impeached. And the other can point back and say, oh, but so were you. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a kind of silly way to run a government, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that like Biden can say, yes, but you were impeached more. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, actually, I was talking to uh, some of of my fellow reporters earlier today. I'm like, you know, maybe at some point, uh, if if, uh, some saner heads uh, prevail, maybe uh, we should change the Constitution, perhaps, you know, two thirds of the House threshold, uh, you know, for, for impeachment, because now impeachment has gotten to the point where, uh, you know, it's got it, it's almost like a censure. But keep in mind, though, that uh, these are some very interesting, uh, you know, uh, charges, and, and and there appears to be some 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 like some like very uh, interesting pieces of a uh, of evidence that that have come out from the uh, Republican Party. However, uh, I will say though that. You know, there, this is going to be a very long process. It's going to be uh, headed up by the uh, by the House Judiciary Committee as well as the House Oversight Committee um, by uh, Chairman uh, Comer as well as uh, Chairman Jordan. And uh, you know, look, this is going to be something that we're going to see uh, going into the election cycle, just like you saw going into the last election cycle. It's almost sort of like flip-flop world. So definitely watch for those cues. Well, you use the word charges and evidence. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's an issue we should look at because there are no charges. And as far as evidence is concerned, the only evidence they've uncovered of anything is maybe some shady dealings of uh, the president's son, Hunter Biden. But the point here was to connect Hunter Biden's business dealings with the president. And so far, and if you listen to McCarthy's statement, he only used the word allegation. They've only got allegations, but they have uncovered absolutely no evidence that any of that connects with the president. Well, uh, that's why you have the uh, the inquiries right now to, uh, to to find out whether or not it will directly connect to the uh, president. Uh, what the what the Republicans are, are are saying right now is it it is rather unusual that you do have bank statements uh, and and uh, transactions that go to. Uh, Biden family members back when he was the the uh, vice president coming from uh, foreign countries. Uh, and you also have these uh, phone calls uh, that the that the uh, then vice president, who is now the president, President Biden, who he, he was involved in. And it's and of course, we you know, everyone was talking about this a few weeks ago and they say, yeah, but there was no business that was being talked about. OK, fine. But and, and it's one thing if it happened once and it's one thing if it happened a second time. But let me say 19 times. Mm, 
you know, people might want to, uh, you know, wonder why at one point, why is it that, that his father didn't say, hey, son, um, can you stop bringing me in on these dinners and uh, phone calls? So uh, are, are, we at, are we at the point then where perhaps everybody in government ought to be impeached? Uh, I, I would say that uh, perhaps uh, if, if you have shell companies and uh, <laughs> if you have bank transactions in your in your family's names and then you are getting millions of mm. of, of, of dollars uh, and and you're on a salary that doesn't include millions of dollars. Yeah, perhaps you maybe you, you should be investigated. Well, again, that's yeah, it's uh, Hunter Biden. But uh, but as multiple as Republican well as investigations family. have not found any evidence and and some of them have even been so bold as to admit that that they have um, no direct evidence. Well, actually, those those are pieces of of evidence. Those are actual bank treasury notes. You know, I mean, and and and, and keep in mind the the last impeachment that we had didn't even only lasted like about a week. So that's something yeah. to keep in mind. And, and once again, there wasn't even an inquiry. All right. And that's something that that like a lot of people are talking about at this point. Did it go too fast? All right. Carrie Pickett, senior congressional reporter for The Washington Times. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. McDonald's making a big change in its dining experience. They're going to phase out the self-serve soda machine by 2032. I thought you were going to say they're going to phase out hamburgers. (laughs) That would be a huge change. It would be a giant change. But the reason they're going to phase out self-serve soda machines, in part, is because of changing consumer behavior. Fewer people are eating indoors at fast food restaurants. Francis Perdue is a food branding and marketing expert. Thanks for being with us. So what what is this about? I, I, I mean, I, when I think of places like McDonald's, I do think of mm-hmm. going in uh, and uh, you get your hamburger or whatever you get, and then you go to the soda machine and maybe you get a refill or whatever, and then you sit down. Why are they getting rid of this? And what does what is that saying about the changing American consumer? Well, I think they're just letting us know what they've been doing already. <laughs> if anybody has gone to a game at, I don't know, the Staples Center that's now the crypto, et cetera, yeah. they have already started putting in automated systems. So they make you go on the app. They entice you. They say, yes, you can get a burger half off every five days if you do it through the app. So they've already conditioned us. They're just letting us know that you're just not going to have any sodas there. <laughs> it's going to be... Boom, yep. boom, bam, click on this, and then yeah. you get a soda. And then if you want a refill, you have to actually go up and bug somebody. Right, if you can find them, though. Right, That's if you can the find them. <laughs> There's going to be one person there. So I think the one that I saw that gradually changed is in Inglewood, close to Hollywood Park, I believe. And actually, they have kiosks, so there's really no one in the actual McDonald's. You go in, you click, or you scan from your phone, which you should have already ordered, in their opinion. And that leads to a bigger question. If fewer and fewer people are eating inside the fast food restaurant, eating inside the McDonald's, at what point do they just do away with the interior altogether and it's all drive-through and app-based? I think that that's actually closer to five years than 30 more years. (laughs) But but is it that people just because of the pandemic and people got used to not eating indoors, or at least they were told it wasn't safe to eat indoors, did they just get right. used to, to not going into to places? And if that's the case with fast food, would it not also be the case with fine dining? 
I think it's a generational thing, and I hate to say it that way. Um, my godchildren that are in high school, they use these apps like we talk on the phone right. and text. And so I think with the newer generations coming in, it won't be that many places to dine in. And I think that the older generations, like myself, <laughs> we're going to still want to go to, you know, the five and below 5 p.m. to go get a nice meal. But these young people don't care if it's, you know, fine China, they'll have it delivered to their home. So I think we're really close to us not having many fast, casual places soon and having either one extreme or the other where it's fast food or it's really just sit down and dine in after five. I must be really old because I did try one of those uh, food delivery apps once, and I'm not going to say which Uh one, and I ordered from a fast food, (laughs) a big fast food restaurant chain, and by the time I got my food, it was halfway cold and the fries were like soggy, and I had to pay more than I would have if I'd just gone down there and did the drive through myself. So why do kids do why do kids prefer that over going and getting the food? Well, there we're in the middle of a gaming era, right? So they're on these games all the time. Our kids are coming out the womb knowing how to use TikTok. <laughs> so <laughs> at the end of the day, this is what they know. So they don't really know the other side. I know that sounds crazy. But they don't. And so they just do it because it's automatic, not because they prefer it. (laughs) Well, yeah, but 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 these uh, for these restaurants and the McDonald's and all that, it it Mm. also serves a second purpose, doesn't it? Because it allows them you kind of alluded to it before, you know, go find an employee. It's all Mm. on your app in a kiosk. It allows these companies to pretty much have fewer and fewer employees until the point where you hardly have to have anyone. And and that's what they're going through. Even when you think about the TV and film industry right now, our biggest fight right now as publicists, as actors, all these people, they want us to be AI. They don't want physical people anymore in these movies and television shows. So it's the same way with the automation that they've already started doing. They're just gradually letting us know what they plan on doing, but they're doing it anyway. They want everything automated through your phone, pay, cardless, contactless. So it's going to be really hard really soon to sit down in a fast food restaurant and get service. Well, I, for one, would like to welcome our new fast food robot overlords. I can't wait until I have to deal with a robot. Yeah, we, we got to explain this. So so here's the thing. See, Rob here, he has he has uh, he's on this massive campaign. Mm-hmm. He wants to be on the good side of of robots because he's convinced they're going to take over that they're taking over. (laughs) And between AI and these robots that you see running around in the street delivering food. Uh So he he wants to be on their good side because he thinks that that will curry favor with them. They're going to remember, hey, Rob was always on our good side. So uh, (laughs) the rest of you are up against the wall. But Rob's okay. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Francis Perdue, a food branding and marketing expert, talking about, you know, taking away the self-serve soda machines inside the McDonald's. But but by the way, here's the thing, folks. You may think that Rob was kidding about what he just said. He's not. No, he's no, I'm not. not totally not. He's dead serious. I mean, you're thinking, oh, he's joking. No, he's not. He wants to be on the good side of robots. Exactly. Okay. You know, for all of our lives... It sounds like the beginning of a soap opera. Mm-hmm. For all of our lives. For all of our lives. Yeah, we've heard that you have to give it 100% in whatever you do or go beyond that and maybe put in 110%, maybe a hundred, maybe a 200%. <laughs> 300. <laughs> Why stop there? The sky's the limit. Uh, but maybe all of that is wrong. There is an idea floating around that there is actually a magic number below 100. Below? For productivity. 
Below 100. Below 100%. Below 100%. Here to tell us what that magic number is and how it works, Dan Martell, business coach, best-selling author who helps beginning entrepreneurs. Thanks for joining us. Rob and Charles, thanks for having me. So what is the magic number, if not 100%, that we should put in for the best productivity? Well, you know, there's an HB article that talked about this recently, and that number is the 85% rule, right? It's all about maximum output doesn't require 100% effort. The the whole adage of max effort equals max results um, for balance approach, it just doesn't work anymore. But why why doesn't it work? And, and why 85%? Why not like 60%? Well, it really is, it comes down to um, pushing, but leaving enough space for recovery, for completion. Um, you know, I have a rule that I talk about in my book, 80% done by somebody else is hundred percent freaking awesome. Um, and I think what happens is people think by overworking that they're going to be able to get more from their people. And the truth is, if we don't provide the space for our top performers to button things up and, and focus on outcomes, not tasks, then we're just going to be spending a lot of time micromanaging stuff and our top performing teams, they just, they don't work that way. Right. It's just like going to the gym. If I go and I try to do 110% lifts every time I go, I'm not going to make any gains. What you want to do is build capacity over time. All right. I see. Uh, And you know, there is that, uh, I have used it as an excuse before. I can't give 100% today because then I, what if I have to give 100% tomorrow? I I don't have anything in reserve. Does it kind of work that way? If you you put it to the metal on uh, Monday, and then Tuesday, things happen where you really need to put it to the metal and you've got nothing in your tank. That's bad, right? You need to be able to save stuff in the tank. You know, I just finished doing a 50K ultra race. And as I was training for this race, I'm an Ironman or in a kind of a triathlete. Um, we learned a long time ago. It's like we're building that zone two capacity so that when we need to step it up a gear, we have it available. But if you're always running zone four, zone five, where your heart is almost maxed out, you're actually not adding anything to your your health capacity. Your work capacity is no different, right? We talk about Zoom fatigue all the time. The ability for you as a leader to provide short breaks for your team, the last 10 minutes of a, a meeting so that the team can kind of reset, refocus, follow up, et cetera. It's just going to allow for smart people to work better. So let's see how this works in an office setting, for example. So if somebody has a job and I don't know, they're uh, an accountant, how does that actually, this 85% thing, how does that actually translate? Do they like take a nap halfway through the day? What do they do? (laughs) If only all offices had (laughs) uh, meditation (laughs) rooms, we'd all be, uh, we'd all be making double the money. No, I mean, the idea is, I think what's happened is the language, you know, uh, I need this ASAP. I need this you know, yesterday, that whole urgent world is, is moving away because, you know, a people have options. They can find opportunities and it just creates this high pressure language and leadership style that doesn't get the best from our team. What we want to do is focus on outcomes. So if I'm leading a team of accounts, I'm going to focus on describing the mountaintop and what it's going to feel like to get this work done and I'm going to allow the team to figure out how to get there. And I'm going to coach them along the way. It's what I call transformational leadership in my book, Buy Back Your Time, versus transactional leadership, right? The old days of transactional approach to leading people is gone. The future is definitely around a transformational style. 
And the key is I focus on the outcome and then I work with you. I coach you and I create the space for you to recharge and reset so that you, you don't get to a place of burnout. I mean, most cost to companies in today's world is team members having to take personal days, right? Well, if you actually plan for that as a leader, you're actually over the long haul building a better rhythm and a routine for everybody. Does this also have to do with the idea that uh, some countries are experimenting with some businesses in the U S are experimenting with the four day or three day work week? Yeah. I mean, we do the same thing in our organization. We have, we have a policy and culture. I've hired over a thousand people in my career. We have a hundred people at my organizations today. And the idea of, um, you know, no meeting days, right? So Tuesdays and Thursdays in our world, there's no meetings allows people to focus on getting the work done. Um, the, the four, the four day work week is a, a great concept because the truth is, is, you know, there's, um, Parkinson's law that says the task will take you as much time as you allocate to get it done. We've all been there, right? The day before we go on vacation is usually the most productive day of our month. Um, and I think that if we, when we hold people to a four day work week, you know, we don't, again, if we focus on outcomes and, and not tasks, we allow people to self-regulate and they just feel like they're more empowered. And that just creates a better work environment. So Dan, what do you think of my idea is a one day work week at 19% capacity? <laughs> I'm thinking that's a, that's a winning formula. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> All right. I, I, I was going to ask another question, but uh, I'm going to put some in the tank and save it. There we go. That so I'm, I'm doing my 85 percent right there. Yeah. Dan Martell, a business coach, best-selling author, helping beginning entrepreneurs about how giving 85 percent is actually the sweet spot. You don't like one day a week at 19 percent? I think it's a great idea, isn't it? I mean, but, one, uh, one day a week, 19 percent. But you know, they'll just use that as an excuse to pay you 20 bucks a year. No, at, at triple the salary. Yeah. Though. Oh well, it's triple the salary. Yes. Well, who could turn that down? Nobody. <laughs> That's it for KX in depth. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. At least. 85% of us.